for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dave Banks. I'm the new intern here. Um, I'm just a human. I'm not superhuman, so I have weaknesses. So I can be bribed with either roast potatoes, pork pies, or white chocolate. Take note. It's important. Um, I was asked this morning by the kids over at the St. Albans site what my favorite color is. So my favorite color is emerald green. I think this comes from uh, my days when I read Harry Potter like the Bible. And uh, Harry receives this envelope through the post. He actually receives quite a lot of envelopes through the post written in emerald green ink inviting him to come to school. And there's so much hope in this that it just kind of stuck with me. So uh, just to share that with you. Do keep open your Bibles uh, for, on Daniel chapter 7. And uh, if you missed last week's talks on uh, Daniel chapter 5, as I did, being new here, because I literally turned up Monday, um, then do catch up with them on the website. They're really good. Um, so I'm just going to pray again, and then uh, let's look at Daniel 7 together. So Father, just to open our minds, our eyes, our ears, help us to understand this text. We thank you for the comfort that Daniel himself in chapter 12 didn't quite understand this, so that's really encouraging. Uh, so we just pray that we would dive in at the deep end and try and understand a bit more of this word from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our Savior, friend, and King. Amen. What an incredible and explosive journey we've already been on in Daniel. Well, you guys have been on. I've had to do the catch-up. Uh, and we're only on chapter 7. There's still a couple more to go. Uh, last week, we heard about uh, the writing on the wall, uh, which was during a banquet that King Belshazzar had laid on for all and sundry. And you can just picture the scene going on in this text as the gold and silver goblets from the Temple of Jerusalem are being filled up with choice wine, and the king reaches across to take a succulent chicken leg or a bit of roasted lamb, and then suddenly shrill cries go up as there's commotion as the guests scrabble away from the wall as a human hand writes up, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Peres, which uh, I thought was brilliant the way that Richard last week said it's kind of like writing money, money, money up on the wall. And uh, Daniel translates this to the king, and he says, the days of your reign are numbered, you've been judged and left wanting, and your kingdom shall fall to the Medes and the Persians. God is a jealous God, and he reacts angrily in his love by being driven over, and the indulgence of idols, therefore, he reacts and makes an example of this king. And the king, Belshazzar, he reacts as someone might do when they're in shock by doing exactly what he said he would do and clothing and elevating Daniel. Maybe he was a bit ashamed and wanted to do something right for a change. Uh, maybe he was just plain scared and wanted to placate the God of Daniel by restoring his identity. But either way, it must have been a real relief for Daniel who has been playing the waiting game all this time since the visions that he had had decades ago under King Nebuchadnezzar. And like Simeon, who prayed in the, the temple in Jerusalem, waiting to clap his eyes on the baby Messiah before he could die in peace, so Daniel's fervent praying pays off. As like Joseph, as like Ezekiel, as like Abraham. 
So Daniel was reinstated. A few weeks ago, my beautiful girlfriend won a competition for tickets to go and see the play Hamilton. And we got to sit in the front row center for 10 quid ahead. Uh, and we got to watch the sweat pour off of the actors and the spittle fly through the air as they enunciated their lines. For those of you that don't know, as I didn't, up until I literally walked into the theater, um, Alexander Hamilton was one of the founding fathers of the US, and they have now set his little known story to a rap, which is highly recommended, even for someone like myself that doesn't particularly like rap, but I like poetry, so I could understand the beauty of it. Hamilton rose to fame and answered a call to duty, but was replaced under new leadership and effectively was retired until a new situation rose arose and Hamilton was called back into service to serve the president. And this kind of reminded me uh, of this when we was, I was reading the passage in Daniel's story, thinking of him, for Daniel too has seen glory, success, leadership under King Nebuchadnezzar, and then has sat as a backbencher, unnoticed, forgotten, ignored, not listened to, on the civil service shelf, as Richard put last week. And the new king fills his courts with young men. For those of you that are fellow Game of Thrones fans uh, among you, I think of Daniel as kind of, he reminds me of Barristan Selmy, who is a wise and graying knight, and he's watching the world around him go to pot, knowing what will inevitably come afterwards. And then we arrive at chapter 7, and we're skipping back a bit here in Daniel's prayer diary memoirs, where he recounts a scary dream that he had had. Important to note here is that the four beasts come out of the sea, which at the time was associated with where evil comes from. Therefore, sailing and fishing for Jews was not a profession that you wanted to go into. And for this reason in Revelation, when God restores heaven and earth, it has a picture that there will be no more sea. Now, I personally hope that this isn't real. I really love oceanside sunsets. And a friend of mine at Theological College actually said that when he meets God, uh, he's going to ask whether there's any sea in the new creation, and if there isn't, he's not interested. Um, but I think the main thing here is what this actually means, that there will be no more source of evil to come from. So out of the sea come these four beasts, which represent four great kings and kin kingdoms. Now, it's kind of debated which ones these are, but most probably the lion with wings represents Babylon, which is very apparent to anyone that goes and visits the British Museum and goes into the Babylonian section. Then there's the bear, which represents the Medes and the Persians, who had a massive empire at the time, and they were a real tangible threat to the neighboring countries, and they were really hungry for conquest and poised, ready to devour. Then there's the leopard, I'm not going to make the noises, uh, with four wings, which represents Greece, which was a great and swift seafaring nation. And they lured the Persians out onto the water to defeat and later conquered the world. And they're represented in scripture by the number four. Um, so something that's worldly is represented by four. So we have the four winds, for example, on the four seasons. And finally, the terrible beast, totally different from anything that has gone before, 
which represents the vast Roman Empire. And this all correlates with Daniel's vision from chapter 2. The symbol of a horn in the Bible represents power. And the number 10 represents a complete and full number. So we can kind of assume that 10 horns arising from the beast is a symbol of ultimate power that either arose later in the reign of the Romans or it came from it and was subsequently, it subsequently established itself, such as the might of Central Europe, for example. We could say this is a multiplicity of political powers that will follow in the wake of Rome and owe something to it. I can't take credit, credit for that quote. But the important thing here is not to necessarily identify which particular moments in history these particular things relate to, but to notice the recurring patterns of kingdoms and their characteristics. Kingdoms of this world are given authority by God, but rather than ruling in a manner that reflects his image, they're hostile to God and his people in a downward spiral kind of way. And this has a lot of similarities to Revelation 1, uh, Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10. Just read it for you. Dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw represented a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear, and the mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And so stands the enemy on one side, poised. And in response to that, three things are done. Firstly, we read in verse 9 that thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I like to think that this is uh, God's throne is actually being built and is being set in place. And the Lord God takes his seat and puts the world to rights. It is a throne that is steadfast and unaffected by earthly events. So God is at the center of this vision, and God's divine court is constantly in session, bringing the evil kingdoms of the world to ruin to an end, even right here and right now. And the last kingdom they shall decree an end to with a single word. Secondly, we look to verse 11, which states that the beast was slain and its body was destroyed. There is no rising up of new evil. It can't. The sea is gone. Hopefully not, but hypothetically gone. The villain does not return for a sequel. Evil is defeated. There are many metaphors throughout the Bible of followers of Christ as an army. And I like to think that this is important to remember that we're in a battle and that the enemy needs slaying. There is great hope for us in these words, for we are reassured that we're on the winning side, but there's still a fight to be done. And thirdly, verse 13, the ushering in of the one with divine honors. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, 
and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Thank God. There is one true king who calls us to give us everything that we are. But sometimes, and quite often, he gives us so much more. It is in Jesus Christ as Savior and King that we find our purpose. It is in Jesus Christ as Redeemer that our dominion is restored. It is in, in Jesus Christ as Lamb of God that I understand what it means to be truly human. Consider for a second how explosive it was in the context of all of this for Jesus referred to himself as Son of Man. I actually asked the kids this morning, uh, what does it mean to be like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7? And we kind of got behind the idea that like of is going in the direction of being a son of man. Because on the time scale, Jesus in his earthly self hasn't been born yet. So he's resembling a son of man, but he's not quite there. But he spells it out for the people that he's surrounded by when he's on earth. And everyone that has ears to hear, hears that he is the one that God is going to give all dominion and authority to. There's only one kind of other reference in the Old Testament, uh, New Testament that I know of, that's linking this in, which is Acts 7, verse 56, where the scribes and the Pharisees stone Stephen to death for explaining, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. When Jesus returns to the earth, he will not come out of the sea where all evil comes from, like the monsters. He shall come on clouds of heaven. And we will meet him and we will usher him in to reign. It was common for people to come out and accompany guests back to their destination. And this is kind of exampled in uh, Acts when Paul is arriving in Rome. In Acts 28, verse 15, it states, the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming. And so they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns, which I hope was a pub, uh, to meet with us. So this is where we get the picture of us meeting with Jesus in the air, and then we welcome him back to earth, the restored earth for him to then reign. And it will most definitely be an event that you will not miss. Matthew 24, 27, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37, it is as the day it as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. There is no chance that you will sleep through this, folks. You will notice. So where does this leave us as tourists in the book of Daniel? There are several principles from the t this text which we can take something from. Firstly, after all of this revelation, Daniel himself felt overwhelmed. And what did he do? He asked for help. In verse 16, I approached one of those standing there and asked him, what's the meaning of all of this? No one ever said that following Jesus would be easy. So in the face of the many trials and challenges that come, and they will come, 
it is important for us to ask for assistance and to provide and create an atmosphere where people feel more comfortable to do so. I'm going to say that again because I think it's really important. We provide and create an atmosphere where people feel more comfortable to ask for help. Think what that means. That's your homework. Secondly, when we look at Jesus, we don't just see what God is truly like. We see what it means to be truly human. This does not mean that we have to be like Jesus in every perfect detail. But through his life, he has shown us the principles of how to live. The more time we spend with those that are around us, the more we emulate them and copy them. So as we strive to live our life with Jesus by our side the whole time, the more we become like him. And thirdly, our hope is in Christ. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. As I watched, this horn was raging, waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. The time came when they possessed the kingdom. We have a an assurance that the books of the records of the acts of men are open, that justice will come, that injustice is only for time, times, and half a time, and I think this half a time is where it's then cut short, and the hostile kingdoms of this world will come to an end. States in Revelation 14, 14, I looked And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. He comes because he means business. Matthew 13, 41, the son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of the kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. I confess, as you might have guessed at the beginning when I talked about colors, that uh, I'm a Harry Potter fan. Um, Pray for me afterwards. And uh, reading these last verses reminded me of the appointment speech of the new minister for magic, played by Bill Nye, uh, at the beginning of the seventh film. He says, these are dark times, there is no denying. But we shall continue to defend your liberty and repel the forces that seek to take it from you. Your ministry remains strong. I can do a better impression when I've not got cold. And unlike the minister of magic, spoiler alert, our leader shall not die, for he has already defeated death. And we shall not be part, and we shall not be just part of the eternal kingdom but we will possess it. 
handed over to us as inheritors, sharing in Jesus' rule. Just going to finish with something that God was sharing with me before uh, this evening. One of my favorite bits of scripture is when it speaks of God revealing his bow and he calls for many arrows. Now, I love battle films. It's a bit of an addiction of mine. And so I can really picture this as this great mighty warrior and he's got this sort of bow covered over. He throws off this great like sheet and he's got this mighty bow. And then in a great booming voice, he calls arrows because he wants to defend what's being attacked. And I really think that some of you maybe are looking at the scripture and thinking, does God really want to defend me? Does he really want to fight for me? I think that this whole passage is saying, if you put your lot in with me, all this is yours. You inherit this. You are my children, and I will fight for you. It does come to a question of whether you want to choose to go with God. But for those that say, yeah, I want to be one of your kids, he pulls out his bow and fights for you. He calls for arrows. We are not the focus of his, we're not the focus of the attention of that piece of scripture. God is. But because he calls for arrows, we're involved in that. And we come running to the God that we trust, that we know can defeat death. And even when it looks really, really tough, and we're losing the battle, as the scripture says, God is outside of time, and he knows that we are on the winning side, and he calls for his arrows. And as his servants, we come running. Let's just finish with some prayer. For you, Lord, are the living God, and you endure forever. Your kingdom will not be destroyed. Your dominion will never end. You rescue. You save. You perform signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. You rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. We thank you, Father, for rescuing us, for encouraging us and giving us this assurance of a purpose and a future through your Son, one like a son of man.